As we promised last week, I'd like to turn you to the book of 1 Samuel. I'd like to speak to you concerning David and Saul. And really, when you look at this beginning in uh, chapter 16, where David comes into the picture, uh, 16 through the end of the book, not every chapter in 1 Samuel has to do with David and Saul's relationship. Some of it has to deal with David and Jonathan. Uh, it's not our intent to deal with David and Jonathan, even though as you read through this, Jonathan plays a very important part uh, in David's ability to deal with the conflict uh, that is found in 1 Samuel between him and King Saul. Um, in chapter 16, uh, we find at this time that God instructs Samuel the prophet to go to the house of Jesse and anoint the next king over Israel. Uh, the history is that Samuel had already anointed Saul, son of Kish, several chapters before this. But he had made an absolute wreck of being king in Israel. Um, he was not chosen because of his ability. He was chosen because the people liked the way he looked. And, and if you don't see that human beings do not change through history, you're not paying attention. Um, we, we have a president now who I believe was chosen to win, but not necessarily chosen to lead. They just wanted him to win and beat the other dude. And now we've got a man who absolutely cannot lead America through anything. Israel didn't change. America hasn't changed. The world as a whole has not changed. When, when you look at the life of Saul, um, he's an absolute disaster in everything he does. Especially when David is anointed king in chapter 16, it says that the Spirit of God departs from King Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord troubles him. And I, I've always been intrigued by that. I've always been intrigued by that statement wherein Samuel says that an evil spirit from God was sent to trouble Saul. Um, and it, it, it's always been fascinating to me. When you read that statement and it says that an evil spirit came upon him, what kind of comes to your mind with that, with the concept of evil. I mean, does it involve ungodliness? You know, does it does it involve, you know, devilish things in your mind? Well, it doesn't it doesn't have to. Sometimes the word evil in the Bible has reference to the devil and devilish things, but not always. Uh, and a small example of this is in the book of Ecclesiastes in uh, chapter twelve when Solomon tells us to remember the Lord in our youth before the 
evil days come. You know, the older you get, the days get more evil. Not that they get wicked, but they get difficult. They get difficult and they get troubling. Uh, things that you used to accomplish in 30 minutes to an hour now take half a day. Uh, your time, you know, you know, all the money that you saved in life to spend in retirement, you get to spend in retirement at the doctor's office. You're going to spend more money in your later years at the doctor than you ever did in a lifetime. Unless you're born with some sort of health difficulty, you know, as a child. Outside of that, you know, that's why so many young people don't buy health insurance because they don't buy things they don't need. But in a government-mandated health plan where the government pays for everything, the government needs for the young people to buy health insurance so they can give health insurance to the old people. That's how that works. Um, and the reason it fails in America is, is that people generally don't buy things they don't want or need. And then you come to this old time of troubled days where things don't work the way they used to. And life is just not as physically joyful as it used to be. You ever sit around and just scratch your head at the young people and say, wow, youth is wasted on the young? An evil spirit comes from, from God and, and troubles King Saul. And I think by the time... anybody read, Did anybody read this this past week when I told you we were going to preach on King Saul? Uh, at any rate, uh, by the time you get to the end of the book, uh, we would almost diagnose Saul as some sort of paranoid, delusional, bordering on times of schizophrenia in his life. He, he, he was a messed up guy by the time he gets to the end. Um, so much that in chapter 28... When the Lord is not speaking to King Saul, Saul inquires of the Lord, and the Lord answers him not, uh, neither by dreams, nor by the Urim, nor by the prophets. So in chapter 28 is where we find Saul going down and seeking out a witch at Endor. And he goes to this witch, and he asks her to bring up the spirit of the prophet Samuel, that he may inquire of him. Now, <clears throat> this is an interesting passage. It's certainly worthy of reading and consideration. Um, the negative look at this is that people don't really have the ability to commune with the dead. People say, well, that, that just can't happen. You're, you're reading a book where waters stood up on their sides and Israel passed through. And Israel was fed every day for 40 years with bread that just fell out of heaven. And water poured out of a rock and gave them drink. And then if that's not enough, a man died and resurrected himself. So that can happen 
this situation is certainly plausible. That God can work in any way he deems necessary to deal with his people. In this passage, the spirit of Samuel the prophet is brought up. And Saul has a conversation with him. Saul is trying to find out how the war he's fixing to engage in on the next day is going, is going to come up. How's the end of this going to be? And Samuel essentially tells him, you and your son Jonathan, you're going to be with me. Now somebody says, does that mean they're going to be dead like Samuel the prophet? Or does that mean they're going to be in heaven like Samuel the prophet? Yes, it does. I, I, I think that all things taken into consideration, King Saul, by the grace of God, finds himself delivered from this world. Even though he falls upon his own sword and takes his own life, I think he, he finds himself in the presence of God. Not because of who he is, but because of what Christ did. Um, now, that being said, all, all that taken into consideration, King Saul made a wreck of his life. You say, well, now, King Saul made a wreck of his life, and King Saul still went to heaven, then that makes it all right, right? My question is, if you're, if you're a child of God, who would want to emulate the life of King Saul? Think about that. Well, you know, King Saul got so close to the line, but he never fell off. Does that mean I can get close to Who would want to do that anyways? What child of God would want to be associated with a man like King Saul? King Saul was a bitter man. He was a jealous man. He was an angry man. He was a hateful and he was a hurtful man. There, there's no getting around this in this when you read this book, there's no getting around this. And that's the one thing about the Bible. The Bible is nakedly true. It, it doesn't hide anything. It puts it out there and says, this is the way it is. King Saul was not a delightful person once the Spirit of God departed from him. That's the key to this. He was cowardly at best, when it came to facing opposition. But when the Spirit of God left him, he became a hateful person. Child of God, you can be this way. You can fall into this pit and be this way. But child of God, in a world full of King Saul's, be David. Because throughout this, what you're going to see is the honor and the respect of King David, or little David, that is given to King Saul. This thought right here is the, is the reason that I wanted to preach this to you. I've heard this a couple of times in the past weeks, but I've also observed this in, in the past few years. 
And if you're asleep, please listen to what I'm fixing to say right now. This is why this is important. We live in a generation who thinks if a person is not acting respectful, I don't have to give them respect. We live in a, in a, in a generation who says if this person is not being respectful, I don't have to respect them. Um, Y'all notice the little Marine that stands at the foot of the helicopter and the president walks on? And he always salutes as the president walks on. Whether it's the president he voted for or not, he is not respecting the person. He is respecting the position the person has. And we've lost that. We've lost that understanding that there are certain positions that God has ordained. And He expects us to honor those positions. Um, let, me, let, me, let me run this by you and see what you think of, of this statement. You do not have to respond in an ungodly manner to those who act ungodly towards you. Even though they might rile you up, you probably will, but you don't have to. You don't have to respond in an ungodly manner to those who act ungodly towards you. Those who act ungodly towards you are taking a huge chance that you will choose to respond in a godly manner. Those who act like jerks are taking a huge chance that you are going to respond in a godly manner. Why would anybody, especially a child of God, want to run that risk? If you are a child of God, a child of the King, why would you want to live your life in such a manner that it is a stumbling block to your brothers and sisters around you? Let's examine a few things that are laid out here in 1 Samuel because I know that this runs through a lot of people's minds when they encounter, say, a boss at work or a supervisor or we listen to the news. The news is designed to irritate you. That's what it does now. Back, and, and it used it, it didn't it wasn't always like this. The twenty four hour news cycle that we have now is something is something brand new. Uh, now, when I say brand new, it's brand new within say the last forty years, because uh, Ted Turner uh, from Atlanta, who was the owner of the Braves at one time and uh, on the large portion of the TV network, he's the one that created CNN. 
He created the 24-hour news cycle. He's the first one that did that. It hasn't taken us long to realize that news doesn't break that fast. That breaking news doesn't happen that quick, and it doesn't happen that often either. So a lot of what is on TV is not really news. It's filler until we come up with something that is news. But in the meantime, it's so much junk out there that just really makes you aggravated. Even if it's a channel you want to listen to, and they want to have a differing opinion, they get on there and they argue like children on the playground. And you think, well, none of this is even worth it. When you read the life of Saul and you read the interaction that he had with David, something is always consistent. Saul did not deserve honor. He did not deserve respect. But he constantly got it from little David. As a matter of fact, there are two instances within uh, the book of 1 Samuel. Um... One instance is in chapter 24. In chapter 24, uh, by this time, I'm not sure the time frame that exists between uh, chapter 16 with David and Saul's first interaction to the end of the book. I didn't bother to look that up. Uh, if you want to look in the commentary and see maybe what John Gill or Matthew Henry has to say about that, Please feel free. Inform me what you find out. Uh, I, I just want you to know that Saul spent the rest of his days pursuing David. Saul wasted his life pursuing David. I realize the kingdom is going to be taken from you and your family. Your son Jonathan is never going to sit upon the throne. Why don't you use your days to do something wise while you're still alive. No. King Saul pursues David to kill him, thinking that if he kills David, then that will give Jonathan opportunity to be on the throne. But you cannot outrun, overrun, and overthrow the will of God. If God says, I'm giving the kingdom to your neighbor, I'm giving the kingdom to someone else, there's nothing you can do to fight against God to cause God to change His mind. I guess that's part of lunacy. I guess maybe that's part of where the evil spirit that troubles all kind of comes into play right there is it affects his decisions and he couldn't make a good decision. He couldn't make a good decision if there was only one decision to make. In 1 Samuel 24, Saul is pursuing David again and it says here, in verse 3, that he came to the sheep coats by the way, and there was a cave, and Saul went in to cover his feet. David and his men remained in the sides of the cave. Oh boy, listen to what's happening here. David is, is fleeing, and, and they've hidden themselves in this cave. Saul is pursue, per, pursuing them, and this is a polite way in the Bible to say that nature called Saul. And he goes into the cave to hide himself, cover his feet. 
And he doesn't realize that as he's in here in this cave, on the other side of this rock right behind him, is David and his army. I, I mean, in, in a, a second, David's troubles could be over with. What would you do in a situation like this? Your most hated enemy who is pursuing you and would kill you if he had the chance is now right in front of you with his back turned towards you. He is completely vulnerable. What would you do? Let's read what David did. Verse 4, The men of David said unto him, Behold the day of which the Lord said unto thee, Behold, I will deliver thine enemy in thine hand that thou mayest do to him as it shall seem good unto thee. Then David arose and cut off the skirt of Saul's robe privily. And it came to pass afterward that David's heart smote him because he had cut off Saul's skirt. And he said unto his men, listen right here. This, this verse right here applies to all of us, especially the small children in here. Listen to this. The Lord forbid that I should do this thing unto my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch forth mine hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. That's the first time that that's said. It's said again in chapter 26. This time Saul is sleeping and his army uh, is guarding around him. Isn't that great? Isn't that wonderful? The uh, army stay up all night long to protect King Saul. Isn't that about selfish? But there's, there's your political leaders right there. You know, guards for me but not for thee. Right? Rules for thee but not for me. Here in chapter 26, David uh, and one of his men, Abishai, see in the valley down here Saul and his army. And it says in verse 7, look, we'll just kind of skip down to this, that David and Abishai came to the people by night, and behold, Saul lay sleeping within the trench, and his spear stuck in the ground at, at his bolster, but Abner and the people lay round about him. The night watchman fell asleep. So now the whole camp is asleep. Who's awake? David and Abishai. And Abishai says, here we go. God hath delivered thine enemy into thine hand this day. Now, therefore, let me smite him. You won't do it, David, so let me do it. Now, therefore, let me smite him, I pray thee, with with the spear, even to the earth at once, and I will not smite him the second time. In other words, I'm going to do it once, and I'm going to do it for good. And I'm going to drive that spear so far into him, the spear itself is going to stick in the ground. Abishai's serious about this. He's serious about protecting David. Um, but even when David is a second time encouraged to take out his vengeance and wrath on Saul. He says again in verse 9, Destroy him not, for who can stretch forth his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? I don't know that I have that kind of character. How about y'all? You see, character character is not where you are. Character is who you are. 
Character's not where you are because, oh, your parents are so wonderful or your children are so obedient or the pastor just preaches so well or the deacons behave themselves. Or because we live in Alabama and not New York. Or because we live in America and not Africa. Character's not where you are. Character's who you are. Regardless of where you're at or what situation you're in. Character comes from inside. It is not brought from the outside. It is not external. It is the internal dwelling of the Spirit of God working in you every day. David says, no, we're not killing. You know what we're going to do? You read on through the story and you'll find out what David does. Is he and Abishai sneak down there and they steal his sword and his water bottle. They steal his sword and they steal his water bucket and they go back to the top of the mountain and then they call out, Hey, y'all down there, y'all awake? Oh, yeah, what's going on? And David says, What's wrong with y'all? Your king's in trouble. Because I got his sword and I got his water bottle. King Saul wakes up. Is this David? Is this the sound of my son David? He says, yeah. He says, look what I've done to you. Okay, this is a, and, and David did this a while ago. When Saul got done in the cave and he walked out, David came to the mouth of the cave and he stood up and he says, hey, buddy, look what I've got in my hand. Look, look what I'm holding here. I'm holding the end of your robe. I'm holding the end of your robe and it could have been your neck. And Saul repents at that time, actually. Saul was a bit convicted the first time. But like some of us so often, conviction only lasts so long. And in this second pursuit, Saul calls out and says, Thou has been more holy, thou has been more noble, thou has been more honorable. Take your pick. The words are in the Bible. Thou has been better than I am. And shortly after this, then you will find that uh, Saul goes to battle. The Lord did deliver David from his enemies. I don't know how long the process is that I've said earlier. Uh, I guess I guess the impact of the message would be better if we knew how long this was. Is it five years, ten years, twenty years? How long did David have to wait to be delivered from his enemy? We we have a problem with this uh, as human beings, specifically in the nation that we live in, because we are so used to having everything we want at the touch of a finger. And we're discovering now here in late 2021, 20, is that what year it is? Uh, we're discovering now you got to be real patient now if you want something. This is not like you're going to McDonald's and you're finding out the ice cream machine is broken again. It's always broken at McDonald's. Go to Chick-fil-A. That's what you should always... What you, this is The reason that we're having the problems in America is that people went to Popeye's to get their chicken sandwich and not to God's house to get his chicken sandwich. That, that's why we've got these problems. Y'all, y'all know that, right? But now we're also realizing that it wasn't such a great idea to shut down the world for this virus. Because everything is being affected by it. 
And it's not such a great idea to pay people to stay home and not work. That is a clear violation of God's word. And we're suffering not necessarily because of the virus itself, but because we are violating God's word in almost every way. Uh, we can't get furniture because Malaysia is shut down. I went to three different places on Friday to see if I could find paint because we needed to restripe our parking lot and I had to go to three different places to find it. They can't even get paint. It started with the raw materials. There was a problem with the raw materials when that uh, minor snowfall came in Texas two years ago. Uh, now we've got the materials made, but we don't have any drivers to drive it because people are being paid to stay home. And now we are forced in America, maybe praise the Lord about this. We're having forced to be patient. Thankfully, on my end, when people call and say, do you have this? We say, yes, but it's going to take three weeks or it may take six weeks. Most people, at least from our perspective, are being patient and we're very thankful for that. Um, maybe as a nation as a whole, we need to learn, got to have patience, man. Now, some of y'all did not get that. You remember the old groupie dog cartoon with the man who was the school professor? Oh, kids are easy. you got to have patience, man. And by the end of that cartoon, he had no more patience. Uh, he was like a doctor out of business. No more patience at any rate. Um, I don't know what the time frame was between David and King Saul. What are you saying here? Thirteen years maybe? Is that what they're saying? Thirteen years. Good. Thank you for that. Uh, can you imagine having to wait 13 years for an answer? Can you imagine having to wait 13 years for a problem to go away? We don't even want to wait 13 minutes. Thirteen years he had to wait. Um, let's go back and let's pick up a few things. Um, because within this passage, it's very obvious. When you, when you listen to the words of King Saul, King Saul was verbally abusive to David. King Saul was verbally abusive to his own son, Jonathan. When King Saul found out that Jonathan... Uh, had made friendship with David. Saul called him the son of a perverse, rebellious woman. I don't know what that means. I know it's not a nice thing to say. You can, you can look at that yourself. Um, <clears throat> that may be a hard thing to understand, and some people may want to know, well, what exactly does it mean? What does it matter what it means? It was inappropriate to say to start with, but when they when the, when the feller who translated the uh, the Living Bible he translated it because he didn't really understand the King James. His kids had problems understanding it, and he really couldn't explain it to them. So he wrote the Living Bible to help them understand it. So I don't understand this one book, so I'm going to write a second book that explains the first book I don't understand. You catch that? Um, um, and I've actually got a copy of the Living Bible at home. 
we were cleaning out an office here about a month ago, and I found one in a, in a desk, and I thought, that's going to be mine, because I wasn't going to pay for it. And some of the new ones have kind of changed it, but in 1 Samuel, when he says to Jonathan, uh, thou art the son of a perverse, rebellious one, and this is chapter 20. If you're looking for this, I see some heads looking down and the pages turned. This is chapter 20 in verse 30, that Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said unto them, uh, in the new li- in the Living Bible, he says, Thou son of a... I got your attention on that one, didn't I? It's, it's actually in the verse that Saul is cursing at his son. That's not necessary. You, you didn't have to put that in the in the book. Just read it and realize that his anger resulted in inappropriate words. Wherein anger most always does. There was something that continuously popped up to me as I as I was reading through this. Um, if you turn to well, let's see. Let's start with uh, let's start with chapter sixteen. Um, it says in verse fourteen, but the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. So Saul loses essentially his anointing. Let's define the word anointing. Let's define the word anointing as. Uh, Divine ability or a gift ability from God to do something either in wisdom or in strength. God has anointed Saul to do something, to to perform a task. And he's either anointed him to do it in wisdom, like he anointed King Solomon, or he anointed him to do it in strength, like he did to Samson. But Saul loses his anointing. He loses his ability to be effective. Preachers sometimes lose the ability to preach. Leaders lose the ability to lead. Uh, There's a contemporary Christian artist named Clay Cross who wrote a book many years ago called I Surrender All. He was very prominent, very popular in his time. I believe this was sometime in in the early to mid-90s. Very good singer, very good songwriter, according to the contemporary scale. But he lost his ability to sing. He, he became a disaster, actually, to sing. He equated his losing his ability to sing with his addiction to pornography. That God dealt with him in this area because play wouldn't deal with this other area. Saul was an arrogant person, first half of the book. He was impatient. If the high priest showed up late to do something, Saul would just take it upon himself to do that. It's not your job to be high priest, Saul. You've got to wait on someone else. So Saul's servant said unto him in verse 15, Behold now, an evil spirit from God troubleth thee. 
Let our Lord now command thy servants which are before thee to seek out a man who is a cunning player on a harp. And it shall come to pass when the evil spirit from God is upon thee that he will play with his hand and thou shalt be well. Uh, the man that they find is David. Uh, notice verse 23, please. And it came to pass when the evil spirit from God was upon Saul that David took in heart and played with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the evil spirit departed from him. Um, there are so many uh, spiritual illustrations that can be made from this. Um, but one, especially, that applies to us as God's people is that sometimes your attitude can be affected based on the type of music you listen to. Your spirit on the inside can be affected based on the type of music that you listen to. Um, I remember a few years ago, uh, well, it was after we moved here. We moved here in 2001, so it was, it was somewhere after 2001, maybe uh, two or three, uh, that there was a popular musician. His name was Lane Staley. He was a front man for a group called Allison Chains. He uh, overdosed on heroin, and the whole music world was sad about this, and they all cried, and they mourned such uh, uh, a terrible loss of a great singer. Well, he had an amazing voice. I'll grant him that. But if you listened to his music, specifically uh, his the album they put out called Dirt, um, one of the songs in there was that I want you to peel me off the wall. I'm so discouraged and depressed. I want to put a gun in my mouth, and I want you to peel me off the wall. How do you not catch the man is in trouble by listening to that? And yet, you go to his concert, you sing his words, you praise him for what he wrote, and then you're sad that he did what he said he was going to do. Interesting that the theme of a lot of popular music is despair and discouragement and loss of hope and hate. And then we wonder why our nation is as messed up as it is. Because the TV they watch is full of hopelessness and despair the music they listen to is the same. Their conversations then are full of anger and rage, and we wonder why we are the way we are. Here, David plays with his hand on his heart, and King Saul is soothed. Your attitude can be affected based on the music that you listen to. But also David being what is often called the sweet singer of Israel and a writer of a vast majority of the Psalms in the Bible still sings and plays to us today. Because when you are cast down and you are discouraged and you are disheartened, where should you turn? To the leaders of this world who don't know what they're doing, don't know their head from a hole in the ground? Or to David who says... The Lord is my shepherd, and I shall not want. Or to David, who says, I look into the hills from whence cometh my help. Now, there are some of the new translations out nowadays that when they get to that psalm, they put a question mark at the end. As if David is saying, I'm looking to the hills, and I don't know where my help comes from. 
No, David is not doing that. David is saying, I'm looking to the hills. I'm looking upward away from this world to where my help comes from. My help cometh from the Lord, is what David is saying. David still plays today. And his words still bring joy and peace and calmness to children of God. And this phrase, with his hand, I began to track this through the scriptures. And just in just in the book of Psalms. What I mean, excuse me, just in the book of First Samuel. Watch what happens. We've already read it twice here that David would play with his hand. So what's in David's hand at this time? There's a harp in his hand. Uh, there was a time that God came to Moses, you remember, in Exodus chapter 4 and verse 2. And God is calling Moses to lead the children of Israel out of, out of uh, Egyptian bondage. And the Lord says to Moses in Exodus 4 and verse 2, What is that in thine hand? And Moses says to him, A rod. And God tells him, Cast the rod down before you. And it became a serpent. And he says, Pick it up again. And it became a stick, whole as it was. And he's going to use that simple little stick to be an emblem that God is with Moses as he leads the children of Israel out. And you'll, as you read through Exodus, there's a number of times it says Moses did something with the rod of God in his hand. You know, there he stood by the Red Sea with the rod of God in his hand. There uh, Moses stood on the mountain as Israel fought in the valley below him, Aaron on one side, Hur on the other side, and he stood there with the rod of God in his hand. You get the point that God is saying, take this rod, this rod is an emblem. When you see this, what is in your hand is important. What's in David's hand? Heart. When David goes to fight Goliath in chapter 17, uh, it tells us here in 17 and verse 40, and he took his staff in his hand and chose him five smooth stones out of the brook and put them in a shepherd's bag, which he had, even in a script, and his sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. You're going to battle, David. Um, you might need something a little bit more than a stick and a sling, right? David is going to battle this enemy of Israel, but he's going to battle the enemy of Israel with some very unconventional weapons. This is a very unconventional weapon with which to fight the wickedness of this world. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ went to the cross and fought the devil himself with a very unconventional weapon. And what did he go with? At one point he had nails in his hand. And yet through the power of death, he defeated death. And him, the devil, who had the power of death himself. David has a sling. He has a staff. But it says here, which is interesting, that when David sunk that stone into Goliath's forehead, that David prevailed over the Philistine. Notice verse 50. This is 1750. It says that David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and smote the Philistine and slew him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. He's got a sling. He's got a stick. But he's, he's got no sword in his hand. That, that is, I'll make that relevant here in just a second. Um, David 
takes Israel after they slay Goliath and they pursue after the Philistines. You know, you know the story, right? I mean, if you don't, I can take the next hour to explain it to you if you'd like. Uh, but after he comes back from pursuing the Philistines, I, I, I tick, this tickles me. Hi, this is great. Uh, verse, verse 55. Chapter 17, verse 55. Is that where we're at? And when Saul saw David go forth against the Philistines, he said unto Abner, the captain of the host, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As thy soul liveth, O king, I cannot tell. And the king said, Inquire thou whose son the stripling is. That's amazing to me. Because David, just a chapter before, was called from, from Jesse's house. Saul sent word to Jesse, This man plays well on the heart. I want him to come over here. I love him greatly. Sounds like a form letter from the president, right? How does he not know who this kid is? The kid's been standing by his throne playing for him. Rick and Bubba on the radio, they talk about they have a problem of thinking they have a friendship they don't have. They talked, you know, Sean Hannity, we thought we had a friendship that we don't have. Or they, you know, Zach Brown and his band, they came through and played turkey toss here four or five years ago. And the next thing you know, they're playing in Nashville. So evidently, in order to go to Nashville, you got to come through Rick and Bubba. I don't know. Uh, and they say, like, these people we thought we had friendships with, but they don't call us anymore. I don't know why they don't call us anymore. Here's King Saul. How do you not know who this kid is? Maybe politicians don't pay as much attention as we think they do. Verse 57, and David, as a, and, and listen, look at this is great. And as David returned unto the, returned from the slaughter of the Philistines, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. <laughs> now we got something different in our hand. And here's, the Saul, here's King Saul sitting on his throne in this elaborate throne room, and in walks this little kid who at this time might be 13, 14, 15 years old, standing there. I saw like he got a pumpkin in his hand. Trick or treat. I mean, can you imagine that? Here's, here's little David standing there with the head of Goliath, you know, in his hand before the throne. Like, this happens every day? I don't know. Uh, there's a friend of mine I went to high school with. Um, he posted a video on Facebook the other day. They just bought a new home. And it's a large acre home and it had a chicken coop on it. Uh, and they've got this precious little girl. I mean, she's just adorable. She was probably two or three when this video was posted. Uh, and she's standing there holding this. It had to be that long. I don't know. This great big rat snake. And she's standing here holding this, and Bill is filming this, and this is just great. And and at the end of the video, she says, can we go get the other one? Oh, man. Oh, that's great. That's wonderful. Here's David standing before the king in with a severed head in his hand like this happens every day. You'd have thought that King Saul would have taken note of that. I guess is what I'm getting to. You'd have thought that King Saul would have taken note of this, is that here's this little boy standing in front of me with no qualms about having his enemy's head in his hand. That's the person you want to be nice to. 
That's the person you want on your side. Um, <coughs> chapter, <coughs> chapter 18, verse 10, it said it came to pass on the morrow. That the, chapter 18, verse 10, it came to pass on the morrow that the evil spirit from God came upon Saul. He prophesied in the midst of the house. And David played with his hand as at other times. Oh boy, here we go. And there was a javelin in Saul's hand. There are seven references to a javelin in the Old Testament. One is in the book of Exodus, I believe it is. It's either Exodus or Numbers. I think it's Numbers now that I think about it. Uh, there are seven references to a javelin. One of them is in Numbers. Six of them are in First Samuel. And all of them are in reference to, Samuel, to King Saul. Every time you find him sitting on his throne, sitting at dinner, wherever he's at, and you find this phrase, you find a javelin in his hand. Nothing is ever else in Saul's hand but this javelin. He takes it this time, and Saul cast the javelin, for he said, I will smite David even into the wall with it, and David avoided out of his presence. And, and Saul was afraid of David. You find then, again, just a few chapters, uh, just the next chapter over, chapter 19, chapter 19, uh, and verse 9, and the evil spirit from the Lord was upon Saul, and as he sat in his house with his javelin in his hand, and David played with his hand. And Saul sought to smite David even to the wall with the javelin, but he slipped away out of Saul's presence, and he smote the javelin into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. I kind of get the idea that Saul doesn't like David. How about you? I think David gets the idea that Saul doesn't like David. Because David has to convince Jonathan that Saul doesn't like me. And Jonathan doesn't believe him. Jonathan says that's not true. And, and to Jonathan's credit, Jonathan tells David, read, the, read through the book, he says, ah, that's not true. I'll tell you what, I'm going to go over here and I'm going to talk to my daddy and I'm going to see what he says. And to start with, King Saul says, why, we love David. Bring David to dinner. We like David. There's no, no problems with him. And, and so Jonathan goes back and he relays this message to David. No, my daddy likes you. My daddy likes you. Glad to have you with us, Dakota. Uh, it's okay. Invite him to dinner. Um comes another time. He finds Jonathan standing before Saul. And Jonathan says to Saul, I'm skipping a whole lot in this, but we want to get to verse, this is chapter 20. Did I say that? 20, 32. And Jonathan answered Saul, his father, and said unto him, Wherefore shall he be slain? What hath he done? And Saul cast a javelin at him to smite him, whereby Jonathan knew that it was determined of his father to slay David. Chapter 22, verse 6, we find the spear in uh, King Saul's hand again. In chapter 23, chapter 23, there is a great slaughter that occurs in chapter 22. Uh, David is fleeing from King Saul, and King Saul is now trying to chase the people who helped King David. Just like what's happening 
across the ocean right now. The Americans have fled with their tail between their legs like cowards because we have a coward in charge. They have fled, left billions of dollars of American military equipment for the Taliban to use at their own pleasure, and they're now going house to house pursuing those who help the Americans and who also identify as Christians against Islam. The religion of peace, going through Afghanistan, killing and hanging people. The religion of peace. Now, is that P-E-A-C-E or P-I-E-C-E? Because what they're doing is busting things into pieces, not bringing peace. Saul's doing the same thing. He's pursuing everybody that helped David. And they run across a high priest, and he actually uses a man named Doeg, who's an Edomite. And Doeg, the Edomite, slays 85 priests of God because they helped King David. There's one that escapes from this, uh, and his name is uh, Abiathar. He escapes from this great slaughter. And as he's running from the slaughter, I've I've taken a a great bit of time to to kind of lay this for you because there's something in his hand. That's kind of the topic we're talking about right now. There's something in Abiathar's hand that he's going to bring to David. And this is found in 23, uh, verse 6. And it came to pass when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, fled to David in Keilah, that he came down with an ephod in his hand. And it was told Saul that David was come to Keilah, and Saul said, God hath delivered him into mine hand, for he is shut in by entering into a town that hath gates and bars. And Saul called all the people together to war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. And David knew that Saul secretly practiced mischief against him, and he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring hither the ephod. The ephod was, was something that the high priest had on them. Uh, it was, you hear about a linen ephod, which is kind of a garment or a skirt. But there's also this portion that sat in front of the high priest that was attached to them, a, a breastplate that had 12 stones on it, representing the 12 tribes of Israel. It was three stones across and four stones deep, 12 stones. And it was also made with something called the Urim and the Thummim. You've read those words uh, throughout the Old Testament. In other words, the ephod with the Urim and the Thummim on it was what the high priest used to discern and determine the will of God in a situation. If you wanted to know the will of God, you took hold of the ephod and you put your situation before the Lord and the Lord would answer you. So what do we have now in David's hand? Not a sword, not a spear, but now we have an ephod. We have a connection to God. One of the closest things that you and I are going to have right now in our hand that is a connection to God is the Word of God. Is this Word right here that is in our hand. You want to know what God's will is? Read the book. He's not near as obscure as a lot of people think He is. As a matter of fact, He is so plain sometimes with this, that's why they don't like to read it. And David has in his hand this time the ephod. And this is not the only time. This will happen. Uh, this will happen one more time 
uh, in David's life or in this situation, I believe, that they, what we find in David's hand is a connection between him and God and how he's trying to discern the will of God for this situation. We don't ever find King Saul ever approaching the throne of God, ever entreating God, ever going to the high priest to find out what he should do about David. Never. We never find King Saul going to God saying, help me with my jealousy, my rage, my anger, and my envy. Never. We find King Saul completely in wrath, in sinful activity and in sinful actions towards somebody who is highly favored of God above himself. Uh, and we'll close right now with this thing. We may pick this up next week. Um, I think this may be another uh, a good topic to continue next week as well. Because at the beginning, when, when a lot of this really went awry, was right after David had slain Goliath. And David had gone with Israel to pursue the Philistines, and they all came back in glory and, and honor. And you find here, uh, where are we at? The, the singing of the ladies uh, is, is what we want to make reference to. I think that's 18. Uh, that's 18, verse 7. When David returned from the Philistines uh, and the ladies came out dancing, ready to meet King Saul. Let's, let's look at this. Samuel 18, verse 7. The women answered one another as they played. Well, uh, I want verse 6. And it came to pass as it came when David was turned from the slaughter of the Philistines that the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul. I think that's important right there. I imagine a parade is what I imagine this to be. Uh, maybe King Saul is in the parade, or maybe he's just up here on his throne, and a parade is before him. I, you know, that's just my, how do I make this apply to, to me? That's what I think this is. They come out to meet King Saul, and here we're going to stand before King Saul, the king of the land, and we're going to dance, and we're going to sing, and we're going to play instruments of music. And I like the way it's spelled right there, M-U-S-I-C-K, music. Because by the time Saul hears this, he is going to be sick. Verse 7, And the women answered one another as they played and said, Saul had slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was like, I'm sorry, what did you say? Is this song to me or someone else? I'm the king. Yes, you've slain your thousands, but David has slain his ten thousand. Really? That's how this is going to be. You mean the news media is not trumping my story? They're supposed to be trumpeting my story. They're supposed to be taking up for me. What, crickets? Y'all dead this morning? Did y'all go to sleep or something? People don't change, do they? The history of the world has not changed in 6,000 years, has it? And Saul was very raw. And saying displeased him, and he said, They have ascribed unto David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed but thousands, and what more can he have, or what can he have more but kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day forward. So uh, Saul then realizes that the prophecy of your kingdom taken from your hand and given to another is probably coming true right here. This is the fulfillment of this. But secondly, and what I want to leave with everybody. Saul becomes angry and jealous at David 
he becomes angry and envious at David for what God has blessed David to have. And you will guarantee, I guarantee that you will make yourself miserable in life if you become bitter at other people for what God has blessed them to have. Look, I've been on the short end of the stick a lot of times in life. So have you. I've looked at people around and thought, wow, they've really got it together a whole lot better than I do. It would be foolish of me to sit here and be angry at God for blessing somebody else in a way that He hasn't blessed me. Life is not fair. We don't need an army that's equal. We need an army that knows how to fight. Because that's what war is for. We don't need a nation that's equal. We're not equal. None of us in here are equal. We're not equal in our size. We're not equal in our character. We're not equal in our intelligence. That's just the way that it is. God Himself was not concerned about equality. When He gave to the parable of the talents one talent and two talents and five talents, He gave unequal measures to people He felt like could handle what He gave them. And the man who only had one talent proved he wouldn't have done any more with two or ten talents than he did with his one talent that he went and buried in the yard. And the Lord took from him that he had and gave it to the man with ten talents. The Lord is not concerned about equality. He's concerned about character. He's concerned about you doing what you're supposed to do with what he has given you and nobody else. And here's King Saul. He is concerned and he is angry. How can you be jealous or angry about how God has blessed someone else? Well, isn't that just the epitome of depravity? People say, oh, we don't believe in depravity, but we sure do practice it. That's the height of depravity, is it not? To be angry at somebody that they have something you don't have. This has been a lesson about David and Saul's conflict. It's not so much been about how to resolve conflict between you and the neighbor. It's really been about what God requires of you in the midst of this. What He requires of me in the midst of this. When people act ungodly towards you, you do not have to act ungodly towards them. If you honor the disrespectful and you honor the dishonorable, the Lord said in another place, we talked here about what was in thy hand. In the New Testament, the writer encourages us, whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do with all thy might, as unto the Lord. You can look at this person and say, 
you're hateful and you're hurtful. But I'm going to honor you because I love the Lord. I don't like you at all. But I love the Lord. And he's asked me to honor you. And I'll do that even if it kills you. Thank you for your good attention.